Electricast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. In this episode, O'Brien must suffer. Or at least that's what this type of episode has come to be called. And in his suffering, we will learn about one of the quickest and most effective ways to erode trust with your team. And a thing I'm super excited about. I get to introduce you to a key foundational aspect of Lean. All of this as we watch the 14th episode of the second season of Deep Space Nine, Whispers. O'Brien is in a runabout. At this point in DS9, there was no starship, just the station itself. But even when you work at a brick and mortar, you've got like a car and travel person and stuff, right? And so this is what they do with runabouts or or a super shuttle, really. They are warp capable and have limited weapons and defensive capabilities. So when somebody has to go on an away mission or a conference or something like that, they take one of these bad boys. So O'Brien is in one, alone, and immediately you notice that he doesn't have a comm badge on. He starts recording a personal log. I've got to try to set the record straight about the last 52 hours. Apparently, they are after him and don't want him to warn a group of people called the Paradas about something. (laughs) How's that for specific? We go into flashback mode as he tries to remember when he first noticed that things weren't quite right. He's waking up and starts eating breakfast with his family, his wife, Keiko, and daughter, Molly. Nothing specific is wrong, but they're just, they're just off, you know, not, not quite normal. Molly wants nothing to do with him and Keiko's in a rush to get to the school where she teaches, but, but that doesn't line up with the stuff she was saying earlier about how busy she's been. That doesn't make a lot of sense. The stories don't quite jive, but he, he doesn't really have reason to suspect anything. So, you know, he, he accepts it and she and Molly head off to school Then he goes down, checks in on his team. They've gotten to work early on some repair stuff. 
O'Brien is concerned, though, because they need input from Odo, the station's security manager, who won't be back to the station until later. They need that input before they know exactly what it is they're supposed to be repairing and what is supposed to get done. Ultimately, he's concerned about the tremendous amount of rework they'll probably have to do. Apparently, though, Cisco gave the order for the team to get started early. O'Brien's confused because that's very out of character for him. He heads out onto the promenade and sees Keiko, his wife, who just left in a hurry to get to school, remember? Yeah, she's out there talking with Cisco. They look really serious and engaged, almost, almost conspiratorial. Back to real time, he's headed to Parada. There's another runabout pursuing him. So so even though this is going to be apparently a flashback episode, there are real-time stakes here. He makes it sound like once he and the other runabout drop out of warp, there's going to be a confrontation of some kind, and it's not going to be pretty. Back into his flashback, Bashir is bugging him to to do his annual physical. O'Brien's been putting it off for some time, apparently. Cisco intervenes and tells him he needs to get it done. As he talks with Cisco, we learn that the Paradas have been in a civil war for 12 years. What's so civil about war anyway? There's a lot of talk about the extreme security requirements they've required. And then Cisco asks a, I don't know, kind of a weird question, but it's not so weird that it turns O'Brien off. Now, tell me something that's not in the report. Sir? You know, the kinds of things we don't include in reports, but might help me in these talks. That's weird, yeah? But also, also, someone that understands the apparent gravity of the situation might ask something like that. So O'Brien, without thinking twice, shares that the Paradas, well, they, they stink. They, they smell really bad. So, so there's that. He asks, uh, O'Brien asks Cisco why he and Keiko were talking earlier. Cisco says that his son, Jake, has been having problems in school and problems with his grades. So O'Brien decides to just head off for his physical. This is a pretty fun scene. I love it whenever O'Brien and Bashir are together. O'Brien just wants to leave, but Bashir keeps asking questions and scanning and asking more questions and coming up with new tests to run. Headache. There you go. In fact, I'm getting a very bad one right now. Kind of a moment of weird where Bashir apparently forgets that O'Brien's mom died and that his dad remarried, but but he plays it off like he's, you know, just asking questions. After the battery of tests, Bashir gives him a clean bill of health, sends him on his way. On his way out, Jake runs into him on the promenade. He's working on a school project and he wants O'Brien to help out on it. He says he's happy to help him, you know, especially because it's going to get his grades back up. But Jake responds, Oh, my grades are great. Just want to keep them that way. He experiences a lot more weirdness and is starting to get more and more suspicious. People just not acting the way he'd expect, like like Cisco authorizing work out of order, and even even at one point telling O'Brien exactly what he needs to be doing, when he needs to do it, and how he needs to do it. Even even Kira responds weirdly to him. His daughter, when he gets back to his quarters, his daughter Molly is spending the night with some friends, so. O'Brien tries to, you know, uh, express his marital feelings towards Keiko. And she responds, you know, like, kind of like her, you know, your best friend just kissed her. You know, like your best friend kissed her, but she doesn't like them, like them, but also doesn't want to make it too weird. It seems 
ultimately it just kind of seems like there's nobody here that O'Brien can really trust. This was not my Keiko. At this point, he goes full YouTube conspiracy guy. Well, I've been following all the posts since uh, October 28th. On the internet. He's digging through scanner readings, sensor records, medical readings, ship manifests, anything he can get his eyes onto. Then he goes through all of the station logs in chronological order. Identify which officer's logs are to be included. All officers. Yeah, dude is digging deep. It seems kind of extreme, but he hits something. After a certain star date, all the logs are restricted. The day I got back. He can't access them, no matter what he does. He even goes digging through systems in ops physically. He finds a lot of electronic traps that were laid to stop him from getting through. But because he found them, he was able to bypass them. And finally, he got his hands on the restricted logs. But there wasn't a lot in them, except for records of them pouring through all of his logs on the Paradas, including his personal logs during the time that he was on Parada. I hope they enjoyed reading the sexy letters to my wife. Even with all this information, he still just can't tell what's going on. And then, hope. Odo has returned. Here's someone that has been on Parada the whole time, and he was there even longer than O'Brien was. He's totally uncompromised, uncontaminated. Odo listens to him, takes him seriously, and says he'll launch a quiet investigation. We'll get to the bottom of this. After a while, they meet in Odo's office, but things go from bad to worse right away. Odo starts asking questions about the Paradas and their civil war that, given his role and what he was doing, he... He should already know. And then he tells O'Brien that they just need to wait. Just wait and see what happens. They got to you. Cisco, Bashir, and Kira bust into the office. They're going to try and capture O'Brien, but he escapes. And now he's on the run. He tosses his comm badge. It can be used to track him. And he makes his way to a runabout. He's able to engineer and computer his way through all the traps they set to stop him. But, but he can't out-engineer People. Jake Cisco to security. He's here. Level H2, Section 5. Jake encourages him to surrender and then runs off. O'Brien climbs into a crawl space and makes his way to a cargo bay where he uses a cargo transporter to get to the runabout. It's pretty slick thinking. It works because of his intimate knowledge of the station. Go back and listen to the Starfleet Leadership Academy episode on Lower Decks Second Contact for more information on how really important that is. Once on the runabout, he makes like a tree and gets out of there. He reaches out to Admiral Roland at Starbase 401, but she she orders him to turn back to DS9. And in doing so, mentions one of my all-time favorite books. Turn the ship around. O'Brien hangs up on her, and then we're back to real time. He drops out of warp in the Parada system, as do his pursuers. They chase a bit around the system. He pulls some pretty incredible maneuvers, cuts off all main power, so now he's on silent running. He's effectively disappeared. The other runabout looks around a bit and then heads to Parada 2. All the crew beam onto the surface, so O'Brien heads there and beams down as well. He finds Cisco, Kira, and some Paradas standing there. They lay down their weapons and try to convince him to come through a door where they'll be able to explain everything. He refuses, so one of the Paradas shoots him. Bashir comes through the door they were leading him to, and he comes out to, to help him. But as he leaves the entryway, an injured O'Brien, a 
different O'Brien sits up. Yeah, there are two O'Briens. Okay, it gets a little weird from here and it moves really fast. So let me see if I can get this right. The Paradas that Cisco and Kira are with are the rebels in the Civil War. They were going to be meeting with the established government for peace talks and hopefully put an end to this 12-year-long conflict. While O'Brien was there earlier, he was abducted and replaced with a replicant. They assume that the replicant was programmed to ruin the peace talks, possibly even assassinating someone. The O'Brien that we've been following this whole episode was the replicant, and everyone on the station was wise to it. She's a replicant, isn't she? They were ultra cautious, though, because they didn't know what it was programmed to do or even what it was capable of. Real O'Brien remarks that this is a perfect copy, and as the replicant dies, he shows how perfect of a copy he was because he he asks Real O'Brien to tell Keiko that, that he loves her. Cisco assumes that it was returning to Parada to warn everyone that something was wrong on the station. He acknowledges his sacrifice as the episode ends. Maybe in a strange sort of way, he was trying to be a hero. This episode really started the DS9 trope of O'Brien must suffer. There were absolutely earlier instances of this in TNG, but DS9 takes it to a whole new level. From here on out, at least once a season, there's an episode where he goes through nightmarish, unimaginable situations. He, let's see, he nearly loses his daughter, Molly, in a cruel, timey-wimey kind of way. Timey what? Timey-wimey? Keiko's possessed and forces him to do terrible things. Even He even serves an unbelievably inhumane 20-year prison sentence. Yeah, dude goes through some stuff. And this one, while not the real O'Brien, really, really set the tone for the rest of these. And it did it in a really fun sci-fi mystery kind of way. It's like this episode was like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but, but it's your body that got snatched. You are the body snatcher. Come to Gorks. Gorks is fun. Come right now. Go Gorks. Run. Choose your fighter. Welcome to Jane Bay Neighbor Gamers. We chose to do this podcast because of our passion for video games. Over several decades, we have played on various consoles from Atari, Sega Genesis, NES, PlayStation, Xbox, and next-gen consoles. We also love talking about pop culture, Marvel, and Star Wars movies. Video games is our escape from a hard day's work, and what better way to spend it by talking about the latest video games? You can find us on all the major podcasting apps or look for us at NeighborGamers.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. Just a brilliantly put together and acted episode. I mean, the pacing was great. The flashback sequence with him just just, just minutes away from the big showdown is exciting. And everyone, especially Colmini and Rosalind Chow, are, are perfect in their roles. In the scene where O'Brien is trying to get affectionate with Keiko, her look, her reaction, oh, it's perfect. I described it as that awkward kiss from your best friend, but but once you know that she knows that fake O'Brien 
doesn't know, whew, wow, has a lot of layers. There's a lot of layers here, but she portrays that just, just perfectly. And I know I say this in just about every DS9 episode, but that's because it's so true. The relationships just, just really stand out. We all, we all know something is wrong, not just because the people are acting, I don't know, weird, but because they're not acting the way they should in their relationships. Like, like one of the early red flags when Cisco and Keiko were talking, that, that doesn't normally happen. And the way they were talking isn't how like people in their normal parent-teacher relationship would behave. We see that. We understand that. And so does O'Brien. My favorite, though, is the physical with Bashir and O'Brien. In the last scene, Bashir shares that he was trying to prove fake O'Brien was fake and ran all the tests. He pushed really hard. And we saw him pushing O'Brien's buttons and even acting like he forgot about his parents. All of that worked because the series has been building the relationship between these two, which, which is a side note is the greatest relationship in Star Trek. Best bromance ever. Maybe right behind Kirk and Spock. But this is just the 33rd episode of the series. We're just a season and a half in, and they've already established these great characters and their relationships. One thing I do have to touch on, though, that last scene, oh, it was awesome. I mean, a huge reveal, a super emotional death. I mean, just amazing. And like maybe three minutes long. Even after it was done, I I had to replay the scene because I couldn't put all the pieces together. They just they just flew at you so fast and with so much emotion tied to everything. I wish they I wish they would have spent a little more time just wallowing in fake O'Brien's death. Cisco all but called him a hero, and his dying breath was offered to his wife. We got maybe 22 seconds of that. Eh, it was a disappointing way to do an incredible ending to an awesome episode. Command codes verified. We've got two really meaty things to dive into here. Cisco was trying to keep fake O'Brien occupied and away from anything important. But in doing so, he did what far too many managers do. He told O'Brien what to do, when to do it and how to do it. The opposite of empowerment. We're going to look at what that does to the trust relationship between worker and manager. I'm also stupidly excited to dive into lean with you. Not This isn't like weight loss, lean, or even that, that horrifying meat kind of product from the 80s. Move over, bacon. Now there's something meatier. No, I'm talking about a methodology that reduces time, improves quality, and ultimately works to eliminate waste from processes. Oh, it's exciting stuff. It's, it's similar in some ways to Six Sigma, and in recent years, the two have kind of combined into the very thoughtfully and innovatively named Lean Six Sigma. <laughs> they serve different purposes ultimately, but both can be used to improve service delivery and reduce costs. <laughs> and I'm going to dive into one of my favorite and one of the key aspects of Lean. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. 
Early in the episode, Cisco does two things that rub O'Brien the wrong way. And these are two things that you, I'm, I'm positive, you have experienced these at some point in your career too. First, he sidesteps O'Brien and tells O'Brien's team to work on a thing other than the things O'Brien needs them to. Second, he dictates to O'Brien what his priorities are and doesn't give him any freedom in when or how to deal with those priorities. Now, there are situations where both of these things are okay, but those are few and far between, really. People generally know what their jobs are, and if the big picture is shared with people, they understand the priorities. And it's that second piece there, that's the one that really hit me. Even with the suspicion that O'Brien was fake or brainwashed or whatever, had Cisco shared a bigger picture with him, it, it could have made a lot more sense. It could have really resolved a lot of the anxiety that fake O'Brien was having. Like if he said, I, I don't know, if he said there were, there were changes to the timelines for the Parada peace talks or something like that, or a change in venue, or I don't know, something like that. But there was a sudden change, so Cisco had to initiate work before Odo was back and before O'Brien was ready for it. Those things, things would have been a lot less suspicious for him. He could have stuck with that story and explained that he needed the pylons taken care of because of something, 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 parada, something, ships. I don't know. But instead, all he says is, I spent the last week going over these arrangements with the paradas. I really need to I want those upper pylons operational, Chief. That's your priority. Understood. Taking this out of the context of a fictional story with replicants and suspicion of espionage. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. This same principle applies to you and your teams. If you need someone to do something that might not make sense to them or, or takes away their ability and their agency to make their own decisions, you, you need to explain why. You need to share the bigger picture or at least as much of the bigger picture as you're able to. Years ago, in one of my early management roles, I was the reports guy. I was pretty good at writing SQL queries, so I ended up doing that quite a bit. Mostly stuff to monitor team performance, look for opportunities for improvements, you know, stuff like that. Well, one day, my supervisor, well, she kind of pulled a Cisco. They told me to work on this report that was querying data that another team was responsible for, a team that we had no oversight of. And they told me that this report was my top priority above anything else. A little context is probably helpful here. I, I had a decent relationship with my supervisor. You know, not great, but decent. But the upper leadership and I did not gel at all. I had zero trust in them. And I'm pretty confident they didn't feel too great about me either. It's funny how he gets all over my ass if I'm a minute late, but then he makes us wait 15 you were two minutes late, Nick. So when she came to me with this assignment, you could say I was a little skeptical. It was weird to me that I would be asked to look at this data and that it was going to be my top priority. What was even more weird, though, was that this wasn't how she would dictate work to me. I mean, sure, she would give me task lists and, and, and things like that, but generally I was able to do them whenever and mostly however I wanted, you know, as long as I met deadlines and quality metrics, stuff like that. So even on the surface, this just didn't feel right. You add in my deep distrust of upper management, 
and it felt like I was being set up for something or, or maybe something worse. Luckily, my supervisor saw that I had questions and concerns. I never did hear the whole story, but she shared with me that someone had submitted a Kaizen sheet, more more on that here shortly, that made some proposals that would have essentially led to the merging of the two teams, the team I worked with and this other team, and they needed some data to inform the Kaizen. To this day, I don't know why it was such a huge priority, but she shared as much of the big picture as she was able to, so I was happy to write up the queries. Had she not shared that, two things would have absolutely happened. First, I would have uh, I would have done a pretty terrible job on the work. Like I wouldn't have cared at all about accuracy. Wouldn't have bothered with checksums. There'd be no data hygiene at all. Nerd! And second, I would have milked every second of that deadline. Now that's that's probably more of a reflection on me. Maybe I don't know, but I. I counter that it's more a reflection on the culture that upper management was fostering because because I would have done those two things as a result of my distrust of them. Until my supervisor shared what she did, I was positive, I was sure this was some underhanded scheme to make somebody look bad and to somehow tie me to them. Instead, she shared it with me so I had an idea of why my work was being dictated to me. I did a really good job on it. I even got it done a couple days early. Our takeaway on this point is that when you, as a leader, take a person's ability to make their own decisions about their work away from them without a good reason, you are actively eroding trust. You're actually actually destroying that trust. What Cisco did to O'Brien here, if we assume it was real O'Brien and business as usual Cisco... He was telling him that he neither trusted O'Brien nor believed he was capable of doing his job. Had my supervisor not shared with me the bigger picture of the weird assignment she gave me, she would have been telling me the exact same things. And if that's the normal way you do business, just telling people what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, I'm willing to bet you have tremendous turnover. No one is getting anything. I understand, and I quit. And a core group of employees that are actively disengaged. Now, I mentioned a Kaizen sheet a little bit ago. Kaizen sheets are a tool that are used in Lean. Lean, which was popularized by Toyota, is in wide use today across various industries and sectors It has, more recently, sort of combined forces with Six Sigma. So you'll often see materials on Lean Six Sigma. But in the 1930s, and more so in the time after World War II, Kichiro Toyota and Taiichi Ono shifted their manufacturing processes' focus from the machines and the physical tools to the process flows and how to improve those. Increased throughput by eliminating wasteful process steps, right? Lean ultimately seeks to eliminate waste from processes, while Six Sigma seeks to limit defects and improve quality. Now, I know some listeners are professional lean practitioners or green or black belts in Six Sigma, and they're probably already screaming at me for dramatically oversimplifying the origins and applications of lean. So please, just know this this is an overview, okay? This is just an overview. 
So the Kaizen sheet that I mentioned is a tool that can help improve processes, identify and eliminate waste, and they generally come directly from the people actually doing the work. In other words, these sheets are basically gold-pressed latinum. Those vouchers I gave you were every bit as good as latinum. Kaizen is a Japanese word that is loosely translated as improvement or change for the better. Because of this, another term that you'll hear used for lean is continuous improvement. So like I said, lean is a way to eliminate waste from processes. But what is waste? If you ask me, anytime someone has to ask for an approval, <laughs> that's a waste. But oftentimes the people granting those approvals would disagree. So luckily, waste isn't a subjective guessing game. No, waste is clearly defined in lean. In lean, there are eight types of waste. They are defects, overproduction, waiting, non-utilized talent, transportation, inventory, motion, and extra processing. And if your brain works at all like mine and is always looking for acronyms, you just found one. You can remember these wastes with the acronym downtime. It's pretty slick, huh? Let's look at each of these, and then I want you to see if you can identify which one O'Brien was most worried about early in the episode when Cisco had authorized work to be done before Odo had a chance to offer his input. Defects. Defects occur when things don't meet quality standards. This is the waste that Six Sigma is hyper-focused on. For existing processes that result in defects, a method called DMAIC is used. I wrote a blog post on DMAIC, an intro, a while ago, and you can find that uh, on jeffaiken.com. New processes use a similar method, kind of, called DMADV, which allows you to initiate a new process with minimal defects, and then you would go back and use DMAIC to improve upon that process. Overproduction is basically what it sounds like, making too much of something. This leads to another waste as it ultimately builds inventory. But it also restricts your ability to affect change or innovations because, because you're either producing too much to implement the change or what happens more commonly, the excess production actually masks other inefficiencies in the process. What you want to aim for is just-in-time production. Have a thing ready at the time it's needed. Waiting is a waste we all experience every day. Wait in line at the grocery store. Wait for your check to get deposited. Wait for the next episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy to release, so on. But it also connects with overproduction and inventory. If you have things waiting for the next step in the process, essentially just stacking up, that's a huge waste. Eliminating that waste allows the process to flow smoothly. The, the waiting just creates bottlenecks and false delays in a process. Non-utilized talent or under-utilized talent is, in my opinion, the most egregious of all the wastes. It's, it's unforgivable. How dare you? This is what happens when you waste people. Cisco telling O'Brien what to do and when to do it is an example of this waste. If you don't trust someone 
to do their job and you're dictating it to them, you are wasting their talent and probably yours too. People bring a lot to the table and not maximizing the use of what they bring is both wasteful and sad. Okay, we're halfway through, just checking in with you. I'm not diving deep into any of these, but I'm curious so far and as we move forward, which one of these you're most interested in? Hit the discussion group up and share it with us. The the link, the link is in the show notes. Next is transportation. Transportation waste is useless movement of pieces of work or completed work. Move it over there, just uh, move it over here later kind of stuff, right? I worked with a mail room that had a lot of this waste. Process this tub of mail and then move the empty tub to the end of the table just to move the empty tubs again when they stacked to a certain point. Or, or slice the mail open and stack it here so it can wait until you move the stack to a staging area. So it can wait until it gets loaded and moved for distribution. That, that kind of stuff. Then we have inventory. I brought up inventory already a few times, but but it's it, again, it's what it sounds like. It's having more on hand than you need. Excess inventory means you're wasting space. And if you're in manufacturing or something at a, at a large scale process, this can mean things like an extra warehouse, right? Serious amounts of space. In an office environment, this can mean, I don't know, desks or conference room space. An interesting example of the right amount of inventory is actually in our recent episode on Enterprise, A Night in Sickbay. In that, the ship, Enterprise, needs four plasma injectors to operate. Five is more ideal, so there's a backup. And six is the perfect number, so you have a backup for your backup. And I talk about why that's important in that episode. But seven plasma injectors, that would be waste. Too much inventory and no reasonable business plan that says that you need that many. Motion is another of the cardinal wastes, according to me. <laughs> what makes it and non-utilized talent cardinal wastes? Well, the fact that they involve people. Motion is people needing to move around too much. A cool tool to visualize this motion is called a spaghetti map. Pucci, he says that he wants a two spaghetti speciale. That's where you chart how many steps are needed for a person to complete a task, and then you draw a picture from that. They're pretty fun. But these mappings, looking at motion, will often result in things like um, a copy machine getting moved or looking at shared versus individual printers. I remember, actually, I remember working as a prep cook at a buffet, and we had a table that was set up with utensils and spots for the food we were working with to all be in within arm's reach. Once I gathered all the stuff I needed, barely had to move to anywhere else. And finally, we've got extra processing. This is doing more than is necessary to complete a task. This is my extra approvals waste. It's also extra and unnecessary quality checks, right? Here's an example. AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning have become pretty common in data entry shops here recently. Organizations that realize the benefit of these incredible tools are the ones that use them and run quality checks as necessary. 
Many organizations don't realize the benefit of these tools because they refuse to let go of 100% rechecks to try and ensure 100% quality. Because, because the dirty secret there is that double-checking 100% of the work, 100% of the time, has never resulted in 100% perfect quality. You need to know your work. You need to know your industry to determine the appropriate level of quality checks. And hey, there's great methods out there like Demaic that will help you fine-tune and identify that. So that's the eight. That's downtime. Which one of those or, or a number of those was O'Brien worried about? He was worried that they would have to redo the work that Cisco had preemptively authorized. In Lean, we call that rework. And rework is the result of many of the wastes, but most specifically, defects. Cisco authorized the work to be done before they had all the information. Once they had all the information, O'Brien was sure that some of the work would have been defective, not intentionally defective, but because they didn't have all the information that was necessary. And those defects, that defective work, would have resulted in rework. So thank you, Commander Cisco, for setting your engineering teams up for a lot of potential rework and for giving me a chance to introduce the eight wastes of lean. So tell me, which waste are you most interested in or can you really relate to? Do you have your own set of cardinal wastes like I do? I can't wait to hear about it. Join us in our discussion group and share. The link is in the show notes. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at SFLA Podcast and on all the other social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T as in transportation, A-K-I-N. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. Close to the end of a series on this one. Episode 13 of the third season of the original series, Wink of an Eye. I think this is one of the episodes that has earned Kirk his, in my opinion, undeserved reputation as a shameless ladies' man. But I'll have to watch it to see if I remember correctly. So until then, ex astra scientia. Greetings, listeners. I'm excited and honored to introduce Walkiria Whitlock. She's the president at Global MVP and an author. She recently published a book full of poetry and prose to excite the magic in your life. Her book, I Love What I've Forgotten, is available wherever you buy books, and I have a link to it in the show notes. She also totally understands why Star Trek is so important to us. I think one of the beauties of Star Trek is that we're able to really engulf ourselves into this magical world and anything is possible, right? I like to bring that into our everyday life. While Kiria wanted to share this poem from her book with you and the other listeners of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, it's called The Magician. Magic is in our perception. Like a magic show, there are different roles. You can choose to be in awe or pick things apart. What role will you play? Someone who watches unfazed or is simply amazed? Or will you, my friend, 
become the magician. The book, once again, is I Love What I've Forgotten. Find it wherever you buy books or by clicking the link in the show notes. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.